KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Wednesday, March 3rd. The pandemic worsens the struggles of Imperial County farm workers. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. Seven California counties moved out of the most restrictive purple tier this week because of improving COVID-19 case rates. San Diego County was not one of them. Those counties moving into the red tier can reopen businesses for indoor operations at a limited capacity. In San Diego, officials are reporting more than 21% of residents 16 and older have one dose of the vaccine and 10% are fully immunized. San Diego County's Emergency Rental Assistance Program is now open and accepting applications. To be eligible, you must be experiencing financial hardship related to the pandemic. Here's Supervisor Nathan Fletcher. We know it's been a hard year and uh, and, and we're excited about the progress we're making, but, but we know the impacts are, are going to linger for some time and we're going to do everything we can to uh, help folks get our economy back on track, get people made back whole and, uh, and really uh, uh, rebuild San Diego. The program is not open to people in the cities of San Diego and Chula Vista because those cities have their own rent relief programs. You can apply through the county website. And it's expected to rain today around midday with the bulk of the showers moving through the afternoon. Thunderstorms are possible for the coastal areas and valleys. The deserts will largely remain dry. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Imperial County's farm workers have long been plagued by poor housing options, low wages, and barriers to health care. And COVID-19 has only made those conditions worse. Now, local leaders say more help is needed for the workers who serve as the backbone of the county's $4.5 billion agricultural industry. Reporter Jennifer Bowman from our partner iNewsource has the details. It's a sunny weekday afternoon in downtown Calexico, and the streets are bustling. The border city serves as a hub for thousands of farm workers who arrive before the sun rises to head to the fields. COVID-19 has ravaged Imperial County and caused outbreaks in the agriculture industry statewide. But even during a pandemic, Kesifredo Figueroa is reporting for work. I have faith in God that nothing will happen. I don't have fear. 
Figueroa began working on farms three decades ago when he was in his early 20s. He lives in Mexicali and crosses the border every day he works. Though Imperial County is the cheapest place to live in California, Figueroa says he can't afford to live in the U.S. We make little money in the fields here to cover rent. Rent here comes out to $800 to $1,000. The agriculture industry dominates Imperial's economy. But low wages and barriers to health care have long been problems for its farm workers. The pandemic has made things worse. A new camp for farm workers popped up along the border in Calexico earlier this year. On one side of the row of tents is an apartment complex, the other the metal brown barrier that separates the two cities. Some of those at the camp are homeless farm workers, and others are seeking a place to stay instead of making the hours-long commute across the border. Jose Mundaca is one of them. The 44-year-old lived in Calexico but said his house burned down in December. He said he must stay in the U.S. to maintain his residency, but his low pay has made the search for a new place difficult. The apartments are very expensive. They're 1200 but my work doesn't provide for that much. Farm workers have crossed the border and entered Calexico for decades. But there's no designated place for them to gather as they wait in the middle of the night. Some hang out at a donut shop or a fast food restaurant before getting on buses. And it's Backpack City. Alex Cardenas is a board member at Vaux Neighborhood Medical Clinic. The organization is helping farm workers with isolation housing during the pandemic. Cardenas says even before COVID-19, the workers weren't always welcome downtown. Don't use the restroom unless you're a paying customer. You know, you can only be in the restroom for five minutes, no bathing. So imagine you walk into this restaurant and there's all this signature and signage basically not welcoming you. When the pandemic shut down businesses, it closed public restrooms too. Farm workers are now left with even fewer options than before. We need an emergency plan now. Raul Urena is a first-term Calexico City Council member. He says more farm workers are sleeping on the streets during COVID-19. He's now pushing the city to seek grants for permanent housing. You look at the quote-unquote unemployed or regular homeless population, how many of them are disenfranchised farm workers? Governor Gavin Newsom last week signed legislation that gives $24 million in extra funding to help farm workers. The money will go towards services for those isolating because of COVID-19 and financial assistance. And meanwhile, Imperial County also needs more access to the COVID-19 vaccine. Officials there are now asking for the state government for help. We have iNews source reporter Jennifer Bowman here again. The County Board of Supervisors has sent two letters since January to Governor Gavin Newsom. Officials say similar-sized counties with lower poverty rates and fewer COVID-19 cases have received more doses. We are the poster child systemic racism. Alex Cardenas is a former El Centro mayor. He says Imperial's poor conditions and lack of services are a financial burden on local governments, while state and federal leaders aren't held accountable. Newsom's office told iNewsource the state increased vaccine allocations by 91 percent last week and also offered an additional vaccination site to the county. That reporting was from iNewsource investigative reporter Jennifer Bowman. For more on these stories, go to iNewsource.org. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. 
Imperial County was the site of a deadly crash on Tuesday morning that left 13 people dead about 10 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border. The CHP says it happened after an overpacked SUV and a semi-truck collided in the early morning hours. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman says some crash victims were taken to San Diego hospitals. CHP officials say 25 people were inside an SUV when it collided with a semi-truck in Holtville near El Centro. 12 people, including the driver who is a Mexican national, died at the scene. One person later died at a hospital. CHP Division Chief Omar Watson described the crash aftermath as chaotic. Obviously, that vehicle is not meant for that many people. Um, it's unfortunate that that number of people were, were put into that vehicle because there's not enough safety restraints to safely uh, keep those people uh, within the vehicle. There are numerous people that were ejected onto the roadway as a result of this collision. Survivors that had some of the worst injuries were taken to San Diego area hospitals. Four people were airlifted to UC San Diego Medical Center in Hillcrest, while one adult and a minor were taken to Scripps Mercy Hospital. The CHP is still trying to determine what nationality the passengers are, and a spokesperson said they are investigating where the SUV was coming from and if it may have run a stop sign. And that reporting from KPBS's Matt Hoffman. Thousands of Californians are getting a nasty surprise as they gather their paperwork to file their income tax returns this year. As Cap Radio's Mike Haggerty tells us, they are victims of unemployment insurance fraud. Most of the unemployment fraud was accomplished through identity theft. Now victims are getting what's called a Form 1099-G showing taxable income in the form of unemployment benefits. Internal Revenue Service spokesperson David Tucker says victims don't have to pay taxes on money they didn't get. But if you were one of those victims, you do need to let the state know and request a corrected Form 1099-G right away. And don't worry if you don't get that corrected form back before you have to file your tax return. If for some reason they're finding challenges in terms of being able to receive that corrected form in a timely basis... What they should do is still file an accurate federal tax return and report only the income that they actually receive. Tucker says the state will supply the IRS with the corrected form so you don't have to play middleman, but you should absolutely keep the corrected copy they'll send you as part of your tax records. In general, those should be kept for at least seven years. And that was Cap Radio's Mike Haggerty. About 500 children separated from their parents at the U.S.-Mexico border under the Trump administration have still not been reunited with their families. As part of a plan to find and reunite families, the federal government announced this week that a lawful pathway is being considered to allow those parents to reunite and stay with their children in the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the administration is also working with Central American nations to help find the parents. Mayorkas urged patience as the Biden administration works to restore an immigration system that he says has been badly dismantled during the Trump years. Lee Galernt is the deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh about the situation. Can you remind us why it's so difficult to find the parents of these children? The Trump administration did not give us the full list of parents till very, very late in the litigation. And then once they gave us the list of names, they failed to disclose contact information, phone numbers, addresses, till very, very recently toward the end of the Trump administration. Beyond that, it is difficult and dangerous to search for families if we don't have phone numbers, 
COVID has made it even more difficult. And so these remaining 500 families that we haven't found are ones where we do not have working phone numbers for the families and have to undergo searches on the ground. But one thing that I think is critical for people to understand is there are many more families than 500 who remain separated. The 500 are just the families that we have not yet been able to locate. We have located hundreds and hundreds of other families who we are in contact with, but remain separated because the Trump administration gave them only two brutal choices. Stay separated from your child or bring your child back to the very danger from which they fled. Many parents understandably chose not to bring their child back because it was essentially a death sentence for the child. So we are looking for the Biden administration not only to help us find the remaining 500, but to reunite all of the families that were separated by the Trump administration, those we've already found and those we hope will find fairly soon. But at the end of the day, Trump administration separated more than 5,500 children, many just babies and toddlers. So there's a lot of work to be done beyond just finding the last 500. What has been the protocol for reuniting families until now? Can't those families stay in the U.S.? So the families where both the parent and child were in the U.S. have largely been reunited. The problem is that the Trump administration deported hundreds and hundreds of parents without their children. And so not only have we had to locate the parent, usually in Central America, and locate the child in the U.S., but then we needed to get them reunited. The Trump administration would not allow them to be reunited in the United States. Through a court order, we have gotten some of the parents back to the United States. But that has been the process up till now, is going through the court, which which can be a slow process and, and a difficult one. What we are hoping is that the Biden administration now creates a streamlined process to allow the parents to return to the United States to be with their children. That's what we believe these parents and children are owed. You know, what medical groups have said is this was straight out child abuse by the United States government. The least we can do now is allow them to reunify in safety in the United States, give them permanent status, and give them some restitution. And we are talking about, in President Biden's words, a real moral and national stain. And I've been doing this work nearly 30 years, and I've never seen anything that remotely comes to to this level of, of horror. Secretary Mayorkas made a point in urging patience as the Biden administration tries to reconstitute a workable immigration system. Would you agree that much of that system was dismantled under the Trump administration? We would, but I think there's a difference between getting the system up and running and delaying indefinitely. But I want to I want to make a one introductory point about this is that the family separation issue can be tackled immediately. The parents, the 5,500 parents who were separated can be dealt with distinctly and immediately. Um, And I don't think actually Secretary Mayorkas was talking about the family separation practice when he said that we need time to build up the asylum system. I think he was talking about allowing new people in at the border. And so we are sympathetic to what the Biden administration faces given how the Trump administration dismantled the asylum system. But we do think they can be doing more right now and doing it quicker. So while we, you know, we are sympathetic, we do want to see concrete action. And I think at some point, 
advocates on the ground will lose patience with too slow a process. So what are the next steps in getting the rest of the children reunited with their families? There's two steps. One is that we need to continue to find these families, and that's been done by the ACLU and a steering committee and other groups through the missile litigation the ACLU brought. Um, and then the other part is for the families that we have found, immediately getting their names to the Biden administration task force to have them be given permission to come back to the United States to reunite with their children. And some of these children, two or three years old, haven't seen their parents in years, you know, more than half their life or almost their entire life. And so to immediately get those parents back. So we will be giving the Biden administration the names of families that have been separated, who we have already found, and hope that they give those families immediate permission to return. Once here, we expect them not to be deported and for a pathway to permanent permanent status um, be explored, and hopefully that can be done, as well as restitution. The families need basic necessities. They also critically need trauma care help. I mean, these are children that are, are have been traumatized so severely, perhaps permanently, what the medical community says, some of, some of the trauma has been so severe that likely their brain structure has literally changed. So we'll be looking for full relief for those families and, you know, feeding the names of those families that we have found immediately to the Biden administration. But at the same time, we need to continue looking for the remaining 500. That was Lee Gallant, deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. And coming up, a new name for a new zoo. We'll have more on the San Diego Zoo Global changing its name to the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. That's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. The San Diego Zoo Global is changing its name to San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance in an effort to reflect the organization's new mission. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the 105-year-old organization is taking a more holistic approach to conservation. Swazi, come! Two African elephants, Swazi and Nisa, eagerly reach out their trunks, searching for a treat from leadkeeper Lauren Coates. Their skin's super thick and strong, but it's... It's really wrinkly. It's kind of like a tire, like how it has some give to it, even though you can tell it's super strong um, and it's super wrinkly and they have hair all over their body. You can see it here on the trunk, but um, it's really thick like wires. Coates reaches into a bucket full of cut up sweet potatoes, cucumbers and food pellets. We can call them over at different times throughout the day um, and they should respond to their names. The keeper says the elephants get treats as part of their training. And if they choose to come over, they get reinforcement um, for leaving, you know, what they were doing and coming over. And then we just 
We'll walk away when we're done, and they get to go enjoy all their treats again. Coach says the elephants have choice and control over what they do in the yard. The treats are a way to reinforce positive behaviors. In the beginning, it's just getting them to know their name, just to come to us when they're called. And then we can move into more complicated behaviors like blood collections, milk collections. The two moms in this nine elephant herd have been part of a more than year-long study of elephant milk. Keepers regularly take samples from lactating moms and analyze the milk's composition. Researchers are trying to measure how elephant milk changes over time so they can help orphan elephants in Kenya. Workers at the Riteti Elephant Sanctuary can make age-appropriate formulas that can be the difference between life and death for elephant calves. That connection makes the work in San Diego even more important for both researchers and keepers like Coates. The work that they do every day is helping animals and plants in the wild. Nadine Lamberski is the organization's chief conservation officer. She says the new San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance name reflects a holistic approach to conservation. It is about wildlife. It's also about people. And it's also about, again, the ecosystems that we share. And, and it's that, that balance of nature that becomes so important in our work. She says the concept hit home recently when the coronavirus infected the safari park's gorilla troop. It was the first ever case of human to gorilla transmission. Several members of the troop were infected and the silverback got monoclonal antibody therapy. All have recovered, but Lamberski says the situation offered a lesson. This is an infection that originated from animals and then went into people and unfortunately people transmitted it back to animals. But it goes more, it goes beyond just that. We had a meeting just the other day with, with our uh, colleagues that work with great apes in the wild and we talked about how do we protect wild gorillas? What do we, um, what needs to happen to make sure that, that they don't that they don't suffer consequences because of the exposure to this virus. In fact, COVID-19 helped push the zoo to change the way it does business around the world. San Diego Zoo CEO and President Paul Barabalt says the zoo was making incremental movement in that direction anyway, but the pandemic accelerated the change. Through this past year, we've all seen how our own human health is tied to the health of wildlife, is tied to the global health of the planet. And so in so many ways, COVID was the catalyst that said, we have to do this now. Baribalt says the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance brings research skills to the table, but he says that's not enough for a complete solution, which engages communities, governments, and other wildlife organizations outside of San Diego. We, if for us to have a greater impact in conservation, we need to use this moment to energize everybody, all of our partners, all of our donors, all of our supporters here in San Diego to be a part of this solution. Baribald says the new focus doesn't mean the two parks will be ignored. He says those parks must thrive for the organization to stay financially healthy. Baribald says the animals, like the African elephants at the safari park, help connect local visitors to the organization's research work. And that was KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. The company that controls the publication of Dr. Seuss's children's books says six of them have to go. Dr. Seuss Enterprises made the announcement on Tuesday, which is Dr. Seuss's birthday. KPBS's John Carroll reports. Look! A cat in a hat! 
For any young ones watching, not to fear. We're not talking about the cat in the hat. No, that feline's staying right here. These are the books in question. Six out of the more than 60 penned by San Diego's Theodore Geisel. The better known among them, the first Dr. Seuss book, 1937's And to Think That I Saw It on Mulberry Street, and If I Ran the Zoo, written in 1950. A statement from Dr. Seuss Enterprises was blunt. These books portray people in ways that are hurtful and wrong, it says. Specifically, an Asian is depicted in a racist fashion in Mulberry Street, as are two black men in If I Ran the Zoo. So it was not um, completely out of the blue. Cassie Coldwine is the youth material selector for the San Diego County Library System. She says folks in the book world have been discussing inappropriate material in children's books for some time now. Jean de Brunhoff's Babar books and some of Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie books have come under scrutiny in recent years. We have so many great books that are doing wonderful depictions that reflect the kind of things that we want children. They want to see their world around them. At Warwick's Books in La Jolla, children's book specialist Sonia Tedder Moore says the issue with the no longer to be published Dr. Seuss books had pretty much taken care of itself. She says children lost interest in those books some time ago and Warwick stopped carrying them. But Tedder Moore says there are still dozens of Seussical stories for the little ones that are timeless. Injustice is something that they feel in their hearts and they recognize it, whether it's a Sneetch or environmentalism and it's a Lorax. They, they understand that in a way that um, adults need to remember. The six pulled books have not yet been pulled from the shelves of county libraries. Cassie Coldwine says whether it's Dr. Seuss books or any others, the process of deciding what stays and what goes is ongoing. We use the criteria in our policy to decide what stays and what goes, um, and we try to really implement that uh, as uniformly and, and fairly as possible, and that's the same information we'll, you know, we'll take to these items. So six Seuss books will start to fade from the scene, but so many others will still be seen. The works of San Diego's most famous literary doctor, sure to live happily ever after. And that was KPBS's John Carroll. And before we let you go, we do have a correction. On Monday, we ran a story from our partners at Cap Radio about PG&E rate hikes. They reported an 8% increase, but the increase is actually about 5%. The average residential bill will increase about $8 a month. We do regret the error. That's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.